0: Thank you for coming. I heard on the news yesterday that um, this weekend is the biggest shopping weekend that they're expecting. Everyone's supposed to be out there shopping for the last minute. So I'm glad you've turned up. It's good. Thank you. And just to remind you, you've only got eight days left to shop. The book of Esther, it's um, an interesting Series of uh, sermons to start just before christmas now it 's usually our our custom here at Monty over the Christmas new year break you know the almost January to, to choose a, a little known little read little understood little looked at book in the Bible to do and we 've been doing that for quite a number of years and it 's been very very beneficial to us the book of esther 's not that little, but it's not a big book either. So we're just taking a few weeks extra to, uh, to get through it. We don't want to rush through it. It wouldn't be right to rush through any part of God's Word. So we're going to take the next seven Sundays to look at the book of Esther and see what we can learn from it. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you, you, you grow through it. But also that uh, God will bless you as you read it. Uh, my, my topic for Chapter 1 is the King's Character Revealed. Now, when you start a book, it's also customary to give a bit of background, you know, the stats and facts and all that sort of thing. So I'm going to do that as well, as a look at that at some point. So the key text, now, the key text is in verse chapter four, verse fourteen, and this is what it says. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now that's the lens that we will be looking at, looking through rather, the the various characters and there's some really interesting characters in in the book of Esther and certain events that happen in, in the book of Esther and the lessons for us today that's the lens who knows that you have come to your position yours, mine in this church, in your family, in your workplace, in your school, at your university, in your neighborhood, for such a time as this. Now the stats and facts not wrong way. There we go. The stats and facts. If you've been a believer for a while and you've read through the Bible a few times and you know you've heard a few sermons, when when they do talk about Esther the one thing that comes through straight away and I've read quite a few commentaries and things on the book of Esther the first thing that comes up is that it's a controversial book now you wouldn't think that would you the book of Esther is a controversial book and quite regularly they question whether Esther should even be in the Bible The book of Esther. Should it be in in the scriptures, in the canon of scripture, in the Old Testament? I mean, the book of Esther is never quoted by the Lord. It's never mentioned in the New Testament. Did you realise that God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther? He doesn't act, outwardly act in the book of Esther You know, people get get really hung up on that. Uh, King Xerxes, who's not a very nice man, as you'll discover over the next few weeks, he's mentioned 150 times, but God, God, never mentioned at all, not even hinted at. There's no allusion to any prayer or any any spiritual service or festival, anything like that. And some scholars even even question the moral conduct of, of some of the Jewish characters that are there, the, the heroes of the book of Esther. It's a controversial little book. So we'll look at a couple of those controversies this morning, not all of them, but a few, and see if uh, they are actually controversies or not. The book of Esther comes... Uh, in a, in a little group of books in the Hebrew Bible, now I say that, the Hebrew Bible, the Bible that the Jews use, which, for you and I this morning, we have it here with us, we call it the Old Testament. But the Jews call it the Hebrew Bible. And, and, and in that five, in that, in those five, five books, they're known as the scrolls or the writings amongst the Jews, and it's got a technical name called the Five Megillot. I think that's how you say it. But I like to use scrolls. It's a much simpler word, and I'm a very simple preacher. Now, these five scrolls are read in the synagogue on particular occasions, special occasions. And Esther... Now, if you thought chapter 1 was long... Do you know that in the synagogue at a particular time called the Feast of Purim, they stand up, somebody stands up and reads the whole book of Esther, the whole lot? Very special book for the Jews. Now I've got a little, little table at home and, it, and someone has worked out, I don't know how they did this because everyone reads at a slow pace. I'm a very slow reader. But they reckon it can take an hour and 15 minutes to read through the book of Esther. An hour and 15 minutes. We only meet for the whole time for an hour and a half. Now, that little graphic up on the screen, you know, is a bookcase with all the books of the Bible. How many books are there? Oh, the kids have gone, so we don't know, do we? 66 books. And they're, they're, they're classified, aren't they? They're in certain sections and the book of Esther is classified by the scholars uh, uh, in the the, the section we, we, we call the history section of the Old Testament, which means that they give you the accounts of things that happened to the nation of Israel over the course of a few thousand years. And Esther is, of course one of the two, one of two books that actually have a female's name. The other one, of course, is Ruth. But Esther, for the Jews, is the, the account of the origin of the Feast of Purim. Very big feast to the Jews. And it's one of the, the two feasts that they've added to the 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 feasts that, f- that are found in the Mosaic laws, you know, all the, the regular feasts that they would have. So important was this event that they added it to their feast calendar. The other one was Hanukkah, I think that's how you say it, and that that's about the Maccabee rebellion revolt. And it's interesting that even though they have a festival. For that, we don't have the book of Maccabees in the Old Testament. It's not there. The Jews didn't put it in. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting fact. So, the, so some background. Some background to to understanding Esther. Very important. The big ideas in Esther. What What is it? Well, the background. needs to be given so that we understand because it relates to a very, very particular event at a particular time for the Jews. They understand it really well. It's part of their history. It's a little bit for us like Anzac Day. There would be very few people in Australia who don't know what Anzac Day stands for. Or the story behind it, or why we we commemorate it, or where it happened. You know, it's a little bit like that. Poor analogy, but I hope you get the picture. So the background for the Book of Esther is that it's set in a place called Susa, which is Iran for today. So that makes that helps, doesn't it? Now we know where it is, and it's during the reign of a of a a king called Xerxes, and he was the king of Persia. The dates for the book always important to try and find where the book sits in the in the historical timeline. The dates for the book are 486. Sorry, his reign. His reign is 486 to four. 65 B.C. So Xerxes reigned for 21 years, and we read in the first few verses that this is an account that happened when, in the third year of his reign. Now the 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 the, the event that's referred to here is from 483 to 473 B.C. So it's a period of 10 years. The Book of Esther covers a period, an event that happened in this 10 year period that's why it's there it's not there to give us a history lesson about the Persians and the Medes or the empire that they had which was a big empire the empire stretched from India all the way to to Ethiopia lasted around about 220 years that's a a long time isn't it but it's not referring to it doesn't tell us any of that in Esther because that's not what it's about the Jews in Esther are, are interesting to look at. You remember that the Jews were, were in Babylon under captivity. You can read about that in Second Kings and in Second Chronicles, and they were there for seventy years. Now sometimes we say things like that and they just roll off the tongue. Seventy years. A lot of us here aren't even that old. So there were people living in Babylon for 70 years. Some were born there. Some had never seen Jerusalem. And after 70 years, let me tell you, you can forget a lot of things, even if you were a young person in Jerusalem. You have to remember that. It's very important. And... uh, after the round about the end of the 70 years, the, the Babylonian Empire was overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. Now, that's very important because when they took over the empire, they, they took over all the stuff you know, all the territory, the palaces, you know, and the the captives that were there, which happened to be at this point the Jewish nation. Now, Xerxes' grandfather, Cyrus the Great, was the man who came along and defeated the Babylonians. Even though he was a, would appear to be a cruel man, he wasn't really. He was, he was, he was a great warrior. He, he, he had great ambition. He wanted to dominate the world. He's not the only one that's had that ambition and I'm sure he won't be the last either. But he was—he was a man that, that had compassion. It was Xerxes. Who, uh, it was uh, Cyrus who, who, who decreed that the that the Jews that were held captive for seventy years, if they wanted to, they could go home, go back to Jerusalem. Yes, great, back to Jerusalem. Now we can read about that in scriptures. Some of them went back under a man called Zerubbabel and some went back with the prophet Ezra and the ones we know most about and are very familiar with are the group that went back with Nehemiah, built the walls. But when you read about these events, the scholars don't put numbers to them but they do say this, that most, most didn't return to Jerusalem. That's interesting, isn't it? Most of the captives did not return to Jerusalem. I don't know what, most, what number it would be, but it would be more than 50%, wouldn't it? It would have to be more than 50%. So most of the captives remained in Persia now. In, in, in the Persian Empire, that's really important. And Esther relates to the Jews who remained in Persia under King Xerxes. So that's important that we get this timeline to understand who we're talking about, and 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 because some of the scholars say, oh, that maybe maybe God was punishing the people, the Jews, because they didn't go. But I don't know about that. But it is important that we get a, a good picture, a good background. The second controversial point that comes up with Esther is that God's name is never mentioned. That's why that slides up there, because that can cause a bit of a problem. Why is it here? Was God involved there in this this story? Now, the biblical scholars and the commentaries all say that it talks about God's providence is seen working here behind the scenes. That too rolls off the tongue. God's providence. What does that mean? Any idea? Looked up the word, didn't I? Providence. I had a bit of time yesterday. I got up early and started early. I looked it up in four dictionaries because the first dictionary I thought, that doesn't sound right to me. So in four dictionaries, the number one definition for providence is this. The foreseeing Care and guidance of God over his creature. That's the number one meaning for providence. Number two, it can actually just refer to God's care. Number three, this is why I kept looking up the dictionary to think, well, this, this can't, because I had a different idea of what providence meant. Number three, It it is the manifestation of divine care or direction. And it's not until you get to the fourth usage of the word, the fourth most common usage of the word, does the word prudent management of resources, which is what I thought it sort of meant something like that, you know, provision, providing resources. Isn't that interesting? So when we say God's providence, we should just say providence, shouldn't we? But nevertheless, that's what we see in Esther. God providing and caring and guiding for his people, the Jews. And Purim, which is the origin. We have the story of the origin of it here in the book of Esther. That feast, the Jews themselves, they see it as a deliverance. And we we even have the word here in this book. Uh, Rescue from God. So, maybe his name's not mentioned, but God made a promise, didn't he, to the Jews. He's keeping that promise. He's looking after them. He's caring for them. Even though that perhaps maybe they should have gone back to Jerusalem, and they didn't. And I can understand why, well, I read a bit about that, I can understand why, you know, I mean, if, if I wasn't born there, why, why would, I? I mean, I was born in Italy, folks. I came here when I was two. I have no recollection. I'm Italian by birth, Aussie by choice, and I'm naturalised, Pauline. <laughs> I'm, I'm rooting for the guys out in the, in Perth that the, we beat the Indians. Hmm. But I have no, I have, I don't have a burning desire. I have no allegiance to to Italy or the Italians. I love the food and the coffee. So you can understand why some of these Jews didn't go back. Nothing there for them. Anyway, they marked the Jews, marked this deliverance in their synagogues, which is what, like a church, their religious centre. They marked it by reading the whole book of Esther on the 14th day of Adna, which is our February March. So brothers and sisters, don't get hung up on the fact that God's name is not mentioned in the book. When, you read, when we read the story and discuss it, we'll see that it had to be God involved. The Jews believed they were delivered by God. They, they remember this great event, they made a special feast for it and they read the book in the synagogue every year, the whole book. So let's look at the, uh, the chapter now. That's the background. What sort of man was the king? Well, the king's character, the first thing that we come across, he's very boastful. He was ambitious. And he thought he was quite smart he had, he had a tremendous heritage of his grandfather and his great-grandfather, Darius the I. And he thought, you know what? I'm just as good as them. And it's interesting when you look at history, I love history. If you're as old as me, you'll remember a show on Saturday afternoon and Sunday afternoon called Epic Theatre. Hands up if you used to watch that. Anyway. There you go, great show. That, that started my love for history, you know, because they would have films about all these great historical events—the Romans, the Greeks, the the, the barbarians. It took me a while to work out that a lot of it was dubbed. I couldn't work out. I thought there was something wrong with the TV, but it was dubbed. But it gave me a love for history. And this man here was like a lot of kings who inherit. Kingdoms from great people. And it happened to, to the Jews too. You know, David. David, King David, he was the warrior. He was the great military genius who who gained the, the, the land, the territory, the wealth for the nation. And it was Solomon, wasn't it, who, who basked in the glory of it. And Solomon wasn't a fighter, was he? I don't even know if he was a really good king. And he exercises exactly the same. He's inherited a vast empire. And we read 127 provinces and lots of people in administration. But he had had an ambition and it was disastrous. He had an ambition to conquer Greece. It didn't end well, we'll talk about that in a minute. And so I'm telling you this because this relates to the reason there is this 180 day of showing off, because that's what it was. He was showing off. He had the military leaders there, the political leaders there, the nobles, the princes, and their wives. So there were actually a number of banquets. And at the end of the the 180 days, there was this one particular banquet that we have here. And what was happening? What was the purpose for those banquets? It wasn't just for showing off, which, which he did, but secular history tells us that What motivated him was revenge. Revenge. You see, Darius, his father, suffered a great loss, a defeat, when he tried to conquer Greece. He was defeated in 490 BC at a place called Marathon. Oh, Marathon. That was on epic theatre. Marathon. Now, when you say Marathon to most people, they think... 26 miles, 42 kilometres, whatever it is, you know, hot running. That's where the event came from. But the story of that is that because of this great defeat, the, the Greek generals wanted to send the message back to Athens to tell them that they had beaten the great Persian king. And they, they, he was defeated at the place called Marathon, and it happens to be twenty six and a bit miles. That's where the, the event came from. I love history. I don't know. You're probably bored, but anyway. So, so, so you can see that that he was not always boastful, but he wanted to convince. He wanted to convince the the, the military generals, the princes, and the nobles. You know, they had to fund this new campaign to to uh, to Greece. But there was opposition too from Xerxes' uncle, Darius' brother. All right? He's got a funny name I'm not going to even try to pronounce it. He was opposed. No, 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 the Greeks, they're too good. Too good. Too hard to beat. No way. I'm better than my dad. I've learned from his mistakes. I'm going to defeat the Greeks. And so, this is the reason there was this, this, this great event. Proud man himself, and he knew how to appeal to the others, to the other people's pride. Interesting note that in, 18, in 480 BC the the Persian navy was defeated by the Greek, almost wiped out, at a place called Salamis, and in 479 the Persian army was routed in a place called Pl- Plataea. It's a pity. It's a pity that Xerxes didn't take advantage of Solomon's proverbs, which the the Jews probably would have had with them in captivity, because Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. That's what happened to him. The next character trait that he has drunkenness. What a feast! What a feast! You know, the scriptures didn't give us all that background about the, the wars and all the rest of his defeats and everything, because it wasn't important to, to the Jews. Scripture ignores all those military matters because the writer wanted people to know how Esther became queen. How did a, a, a nice Jewish girl become the queen of Persia? How did that happen? And that's why it's, it's there. It's interesting that we read in that in that verse that um, Xerxes was in high spirits from wine. That's code for drunk. All right. You know this feast is going seven days. I'm not sure exactly which day this was. Probably near the end. Day and night. You know, that's a lot of wine. Not much recovery time. Do you think he was thinking clearly? I don't think so. No. And so he 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 ordered he ordered his uh, his uh, eunuchs to to bring to bring the queen to this event. Now uh, you know been drinking a long time military leaders a uh, uh, lot of a lot of testosterone there, a lot of egos, you know no doubt the concubines would have been there as well. Can you imagine what it was like? It wasn't a fellowship tea, brothers and sisters. it wasn't that all right. And wasn't that. So Vashti was ordered to come and to display her beauty. Now that's an interesting phrase. Spent a lot of time looking at that. We've got a few scholars giving us an idea of what that might mean. First of all, we have to remember that Persian ladies, women, and, and particularly wives, were not to go into public or being seen by others Unveiled. That's important to remember. It doesn't come up here, but that's important to understand. Some scholars believe that that Vashti would have been displayed scantily dressed, if not semi naked. Hmm. A little bit like our beauty pageants, you know, just a little bikini. Some of them believe that all she was wearing was her crown. Well, she would be wearing only her crown and then there's another school of thought that that, that, sa- that said that um, they believed that she was pregnant with Artaxerxes, which was the successor of Xerxes and that's probably why she didn't want to go whatever the case she said no 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 to a powerful king is a problem always has been and even today with the, the Me Too movement, you know, to say no to a powerful person in any position causes problems. Nothing has changed, has it, brothers and sisters? Nothing has changed. You know, over two, two and a half thousand years later, we are still suffering the same problems, aren't we? Too much alcohol, not clear thinking trying to uh, exert authority over others that we don't have. But in this situation, as we read together, it's a triple offence. First of all, what happened? Well, they said that this is a, a woman challenging the authority of a man. How dare she? Eh? Well, that's the first problem that, they, that uh, Xerxes was facing with all these blokes. The second one was the wife, the wife was disobeying the husband. And then, of course, the subject defined the command of the king. Now, that is not an ideal situation when you're the king trying to impress the military commanders and the nobles to go with you to Greece to conquer a foe that defeated your father a few years previous. So he had to, had to come up with a solution for this problem. He had a bruised ego, pride was dented, and we read there in uh, verse 12, the king was furious and burned with anger. I'll read you another verse from Proverbs. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly. Proverbs 14, verse 17. And that's exactly what he did. Because the third trait that you you come across across him is he's very vindictive. And you'll see that as as other speakers will go through the book of Esther, you'll see the vindictiveness of this man coming through. Now as we read together, verses 13 and 15, it shows that... The character of the man he was very vindictive. He says he look listen to the way he says there uh, according to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? he asked. She has not obeyed the king. He just couldn't let it go, could he? He had to say face. He couldn't say, guys, like we would say, you know, she's got a headache, she can't make it. You know, he 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 couldn't make an excuse. He had to get revenge. He had to be, had to get vengeance. And you know, as as powerful a man as Xerxes was, he was really easily manipulated by people. That we'll also see as we go through the Book of Esther, and so we see it starting right here, the the counselors that he had. Well. They said, well, uh, you're a great king. Um, this is totally unacceptable. You, you need to do something. They exaggerated the situation. They said, all the king, all the empire, you know, from India to Ethiopia, all the women there, they're going to rebel against their husbands. We're in big trouble here. The consequences of, of Vashti's actions will, will, will be historical. And they were. And so they came up, they devised a plan to dispose of the queen. But the only good thing about this is that they didn't kill her, which is a common thing that happened in those days, I suppose. They didn't kill her. But it was a rash edict. And, we, and you'll, know, you'll learn a bit more about the edicts of, of, of the, the Medes and the Persians. as we go through, it's for some other speaker to explain, I don't want to take away from them. They'll explain to you, but they couldn't be rescinded, they couldn't be changed. So the royal edict went out that she could not be the queen and someone else needed to be chosen. And that's where the, 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 uh, the, um, the chapter ends. But what we see in this whole context of chapter 1 is that he's very inept. He really is. Hasn't thought out a lot of things. And just as an aside, just so you get a context, a, a, a good connection to chapter two, he divorced Ashley Va- not long after this, according to history, in his, the third year of his reign. But he didn't marry Esther until the seventh year of his reign. That's three, seven, there's a bit of a gap there, isn't there? What happened then? That's when he went to Greece and got whipped. So he came back, thought, oh, how am I going to mitigate this defeat? The best way to do that is to get a queen. Distract the people from what's actually happening, you know. Get their attention on something else, you know, something trivial but popular. Does this sound familiar to you? (sighs) Xerxes was not a patch on his grandfather. Or who who freed the Jews he he literally freed the Jews from bondage he allowed them to go home he wasn't a patch on his father Darius who, who assisted Nehemiah if you read Nehemiah Darius was quite helpful wasn't he in helping Nehemiah to rebuild those walls in Jerusalem he was a selfish, proud, boastful person an inept ruler and a leader and a man that's what he. That's his character. More of his character will be revealed as uh, as we go through. But even even just with that little introduction and glimpse of the 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 background of the book and so forth, you can see God has to be involved in all those things happening. And as we go through the book of Esther, you'll see that God is involved at such a time as that. And uh, hopefully we will learn how we can be used of God in such a time as this.